passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. I mentioned earlier, uh, this morning we're continuing in First Timothy, and this is our second to last week in this book. Uh, we're spending some time in First Timothy chapter 6 this morning, going to be looking at verses 11 through 16. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up uh, to that passage. We'll be in it here in just a few moments. Uh, as we approach this passage, we're going to see that this is Paul's, so to speak, final charge to Timothy. He uh, has been talking to Timothy about how to lead the church, how to guide the church, structure the church. And now when he gets to the very end, he, he approaches Timothy and says, All right, Timothy, I'm going to call you a man of God here. And this is how I want you to live a faithful, God-honoring life in the church. That's the conclusion of this letter, is this charge to live a faithful, God-honoring life, to live a godly life. He calls Timothy a man of God, and then he follows that up with a couple descriptions of, of how he can be a man of God. When you hear that phrase, man of God or woman of God, does someone come to mind? Who comes to mind when you think of a man of God or a woman of God? For some of us, it might be the parent that is sitting right next to us. For others, it might be a grandparent. You can look back at your life and you can say that you are the tangible fruit of their countless hours in prayer for you. For others, it could be a mentor. A friend of mine is a pastor in his mid-30s and uh, he shared with me this past week that he still gets called every year on his birthday by his fifth grade Sunday school teacher to pray for him. Others could point to an experience in college or a business professional that they look at and they see as someone who is a, a, a paragon of godliness, of this holiness in their lives. And when we look at these people, we can say, I, I want that in my life, but the question is, how do we get it? How do we attain this godliness, this godly living that we see in others? How is it that we get from here, wherever here may be, to there? And that's what this morning is ultimately about. Paul does not share a secret recipe to holiness. He does not share five secret steps for us to follow that will make us a godly man or a godly woman. There are no shortcuts in the journey of holiness, but here he does give us what is important. He gives us direction or how we should begin to process how God is calling us to live as individuals in the church to grow closer to God. It gives us direction. But perhaps more importantly for us this morning, if we find ourselves stuck in a rut, stalled out in our spiritual walk or complacent in our life with Christ, he also gives us some motivation. I mentioned that we're going to be in 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 through 16. Hear these words this morning as we consider Paul's words to Timothy and to us. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, 
godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul starts this passage with a powerful charge to Timothy, a powerful calling to Timothy. He calls him a man of God. Now this phrase, man of God, is one that is rare in the Bible. It is very rarely used, and it was a great honor for Timothy to be considered a man of God. I imagine that as Timothy read this letter for the first time, he got goosebumps as he heard Paul refer to him as a man of God. Only a select few throughout the Bible are referred to with this title. Moses was a man of God. Samuel was a man of God. David was a man of God. Elijah, Elisha. And just a few others were considered to be men of God. It was a title referred, referring to those who were great leaders in the nation of Israel. For someone such as Timothy, who struggled with his confidence, with his insecurities in this position of leadership, this title was meant to be a boost of encouragement for him. But even more than a boost of encouragement, it also highlights the differences between him and the false teachers. As we've been looking at 1 Timothy, we've seen over and over again that there were elders who began to teach a different gospel in the church in Ephesus. Right before this passage, at the beginning of chapter 6, Paul speaks specifically to these false teachers. He addresses them head on. And then from there, he mentions Timothy as this man of God. Paul is directly contrasting these false teachers with Timothy. And essentially what he is saying is that you are either going to be a man of God or you are going to be a man of this world like these elders are. For us, the same thing is true this morning. You are either going to be a man of God or a woman of God or you are going to be a man of the world, a woman of the world like the false teachers. There is no middle ground. You are either becoming more like God or more like the world. And in our quest for holiness, in our journey toward holiness, it is important for us to recognize this crucial point that there is no place for complacency. There is no place for playing both sides of the field. You are either becoming more like Christ or more like the world. Here in verse 11, Paul issues two commands to Timothy. I want to look at these two commands together because I think they highlight two opposite and yet linked actions in our growth. First, he says that Timothy is to flee these things. And then he says that he is to pursue. And then he lists six different attributes of things that Timothy is to pursue in his life. 
What's interesting is that he's basically telling Timothy to run away from certain things and run toward other things. In other words, he's saying in order for us to live a faithful, God-honoring life, we need to run from evil, these things that he mentions here, evil, and run toward the good. Paul mentions that we are to flee these things. In the context of this passage, it is referring to what he just got done mentioning in chapter 6. He just got done mentioning the greed and love of money of these false teachers. More generally, he's telling Timothy to flee all forms of evil. Sometimes the holiest thing that you can do is to turn tail and run. Last week, we looked at the great danger facing us if we did not run from evil, verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Essentially, what Paul is saying is that if you don't run from evil, it will destroy you. The danger is very real that faces each and every one of us. Like a gazelle facing a lion, there is no point in standing your ground and negotiating with evil. The calling of the gospel is to run from evil. Five years ago, uh, when Crystal and I were in East Africa, the building we were staying in uh, did not have a bathroom in it. And so for us to go to the bathroom, uh, we had to walk down this path uh, that was 100, 150 yards or so. And that was uh, relatively difficult in the middle of the night because it was a very crude path. Uh, It was unlit and it wound in between this very tall grass. It was about as tall as me. Now, one night, uh, I woke up around 3 in the morning, and your mind can do a lot of crazy things to you at 3 in the morning, especially when you're struggling with jet lag, the food is not sitting well with you. I wake up, and the first thing that pops into my mind is this image from planet Earth of this lion stalking its prey at night in the tall grass. I'm pretty sure that's not actually even a scene in planet Earth, but I was convinced it was. I had... I was thinking that there was going to be a, uh, something facing me as I walked out to go to the bathroom. And so being the sensible person that I am, I decided, well, I'm just going to wait. Just going to avoid that. But unfortunately, that made things even worse because I couldn't get back to sleep. And now my imagination is running wild. And I've began to think about how I'm going to defend myself, not just from a theoretical lion attack, but from the inevitable lion attack that's about to happen when I walk out the door. Finally, I, I build up enough courage to just face my impending doom. And I walk out of the, the building and just sprint up this path to the bathroom. I make it safely. And I thank God that I, I make it safely. And then I realize I have to go back. I'm not going to spend the rest of the night in the bathroom. And what was, uh, went from a, a moment of just praising God that I was safe to realizing that this lion was just watching me and toying with me. And he was waiting for me to return. I'm before you this morning. As you can see, I survived. There was no lion. 
As you can probably imagine, when I told Crystal this story, she laughed nearly uncontrollably at my imagination and the doom that I predicted for myself. When we're faced with danger, we run. When we are faced with our life on the line, we run. You see, whether we realize it or not, each and every one of us is a runner by nature. We all run from things, and we all run toward other things. Some of us may be running from our past. Others of us may be running from pain. Maybe trying to escape the evils that we have experienced. Some of us might be running from God. But at the same time, all of us are running toward something as well. Many of us are running toward success, toward financial security, toward happiness, toward recognition, toward a hundred or a thousand different things. Paul recognizes this tendency within each and every one of us that we will all run. And he tells us if we're going to run, make sure that we're running from evil and running toward good. You see, it's not enough for us to just flee evil. We also have to replace it with good. And so he lists six characteristics of things that we are to pursue passionately in our walks with God. First, he mentions righteousness and godliness. Righteousness refers to a horizontal action of loving kindness toward those who surround us. If we want to be God-honoring in our lives, then let us pursue righteousness or a love toward everyone that we meet. He also says that we are to pursue godliness or a vertical love toward God. To pursue God and to love him wholeheartedly. Next, he mentions we are to pursue faith and love. Faith is the belief that we have, the trust that we have in God, that he will be faithful to his promises to us. Love is our faith in action or the result of that trust in God, shown toward God and toward others. And then he lists steadfastness or gentleness that we are to pursue as well. Gentleness may seem like it's a bit odd in this passage. This passage says that we are to fight the good fight of the faith, and yet Paul here also says that we are to pursue gentleness. Gentleness is crucial in the walk that we have with Christ. It does not mean weakness, but instead it refers to strength that is under control. I think steadfastness is the most unique and yet one of the most crucial things that is listed here for us today. Steadfastness is this endurance A perseverance in the face of anything and everything. I think this shows itself in several different ways for us this morning. First, steadfastness means that we are uncompromising in the light of cultural pressure. Some of the biggest news out of the UK this past few weeks has been uh, the news that Tim Farron has, uh, has resigned from his position as the leader of the Liberal Democrat Party. 
maybe uh, you're not familiar with this story, uh, but Tim Farron uh, was a leader of this party for quite some time. And uh, after the news of the most recent election, he resigned from his position, saying he could no longer uh, he could no longer find a way to mesh his evangelical beliefs with what people were saying about his role in the political party. The Liberal Liberal Democrat Party in the UK is a center-left sort of uh, political group, and and I encourage you to look up his name and to look at what he wrote as an opinion article for why he was resigning. But I just want to read a few words to you this morning. It says this, To be a political leader especially of a progressive liberal party in 2017, and to live as a committed Christian to hold faithfully to the Bible's teaching has felt impossible for me. I'm a liberal to my fingertips, and that liberalism means that I am passionate about defending the rights and liberties of people who believe differently than me. There are Christians in politics who take the view that they should impose tenets of faith on society, but I have not taken that approach because I disagree with it. It is not liberal and it is counterproductive when it comes to advancing the gospel. Even so, I seem to be the subject of suspicion because of what I believe and who my faith is in. That is the challenge our party and my successor faces and the opportunity I'm certain that they will rise to. Notice these words here at the end. I want to say one more thing. I joined our party when I was 16. It is in my blood. I love our history, our people. I thoroughly love my party. Imagine how proud I am to lead this party. And then imagine what would lead me to voluntarily relinquish that honor. In the words of Isaac Watts, it would have to be something so amazing, so divine. It demands my heart, my life, and my all. That last phrase there is is a quote from the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. This is a powerful picture of steadfastness in the midst of cultural pressure. To cherish the gospel more than anything. To be willing to forsake anything for the sake of the gospel. But that's not the only way that steadfastness shows itself in our lives. Not just in the face of cultural pressure. It's also when we are faced with difficulty, with pain, with suffering. Steadfastness means to endure like a lighthouse being beaten by waves over and over and over that would destroy any lesser structure. Steadfastness also means to endure in prayer for those that we see no fruit from. There's an old story of a little boy who was a part of a gypsy community in Eastern Europe. He became a Christian at a young boy and desired that his uncle would become a Christian as well. But in that culture and in that society, it was virtually unthinkable for a young child to start a conversation with their elder. Especially when it was on such a sensitive topic. And so, not knowing what to do, he just simply decided to start praying. And he prayed and he prayed and he prayed that his his uncle would eventually become a Christian. One day, after some significant amount of time has passed, his uncle comes up to him and says, Smith, which is the boy's name, Smith, I I have a question for you. Why is your suit that you wear in such perfect condition except for your knees, which are worn and have holes in them? 
Seizing the opportunity, the little boy said, it's because I'm on my knees praying for you, dear uncle, every single chance that I get. I desire that you would know Jesus more than anything, and so I pray for you constantly. The uncle was so moved by this story of this little boy's steadfastness in prayer. This little boy's sacrifice in prayer that he became a Christian in that moment. Steadfastness is a mark that we should all pursue in our lives. It matters what we run after. It matters what we run from. It is indeed very simple, but it is not easy. Holy, holiness is, in, in essence, it is very simple. But it is not easy for us to pursue. John Stott wrote this when considering the difficulty of holiness. He says this, There is no particular secret to learn, no formula to recite, no technique for us to master. The apostle gives us no teaching on holiness and how to attain it. We simply are to run from evil as we run from danger and run after goodness as we run after success. Only once we see evil as the evil it is, we will want to flee it from it. And only once we see goodness as it is that we will want to pursue it. The key for us to grow more like Christ, to become godly in our lives, to become men of God, women of God, is to recognize what evil is and to run away from it. And to recognize what good is and for us to pursue it. To run from evil for the danger that it is. To run toward good for the, the beauty that it is. To exert every effort to attain that goodness as we pursue God. In order for us to live a faithful and God-honoring life, we must run from evil and run toward good. Paul continues in the first half of verse 12 with a very familiar uh, saying Fight the good fight of the faith. Like I said, it's very familiar, but what does it mean? Faith has a definite article in front of it, has the in front of it, and that signifies to us what this means. This isn't just a subjective feeling of my faith, but instead the teaching of the church, the teaching of the gospel. And so when he says fight for the good fight of, of the faith or of the gospel, he's really saying that we are to protect the true gospel. We're to guard the gospel in our lives. But the question is, what exactly does that mean? Well, on a personal experience, it means that we are to pursue holiness, that we are supposed to protect the truth of the gospel with our own lives and how our testimonies reflect that. But even more, it, it is a charge to us, it is a charge to the church to guard the true teaching of the gospel, to hold forth what the Bible says, and to not waver from that teaching, to defend it from attacks from without, as well as, unfortunately, from attacks within. That's Paul's second charge to Timothy. In order to live a faithful, God-honoring life, we need to fight for the true gospel you see, if the first command reminds us that godliness is deeply concerned with our morality or how we are living, this phrase here reminds us that godliness is also deeply concerned with what we believe. 
Doctrine matters. What we believe matters because it is the root of the entire Christian life. It is the lifeblood of the church and of the Christian. If we were to poison doctrine, or if we were to allow doctrine to decay, if we were to allow what we believe to decay or to not matter as much, all is at risk. Think back to the person who came to mind when we asked, uh, who is a man of God or a woman of God in your own experience? What defined them as a man of God or a woman of God? Was it their morality alone? Or was it coupled with a deep, intimate knowledge of God? A deep, intimate knowledge of who God is and what God has done. You see, morality matters. But more so, it matters what we believe. Paul's language here stresses the hard work that this struggle is. This word fights that he uses here is often associated with the athletic competitions in the Greco-Roman world. Paul was a Jew, but he was from a Greek city, and so he was very familiar with Greek games. He was very familiar with the training that the athletes would go through as they competed. The word fight here that is mentioned twice is actually the root or the origin of our word agony in the English language. I think that highlights the, the type of effort that we are to exert to make sure that the gospel is preserved. When I was in high school, I was a part of our cross-country team, and even though uh, I didn't really care for the sport and thought that pretty much every single thing associated with cross-country was agony, as Paul says here, uh, there's one workout that always comes to mind, and those were 400 repeats. Every early fall in the heat, we would gather around the track and we would run 400 meter uh, distances uh, with certain splits that we had to meet. And then we would get a minute and 30 rests and then we'd have to run again. If we missed our time, but didn't make our split, we had to do it over again. By the end of the workout, every single person is lying on the ground, exhausted. Dry heaving was actually quite common uh, during these experiences. And when I think of agony, which Paul is referring to here, this exertion of effort, I think of those moments. I think of those moments where my lungs were on fire, my, my legs felt like they were going to fall off. And Paul, he's not trying to be grotesque here. He's just saying that's the type of effort that we should exert to protect the gospel. That's the type of effort that we should exert in our lives to know who God is. To pursue not just morality, not just right uh, action in our lives, but also right belief with who we are. In order for us to live a faithful, God-honoring life, we need to fight for the true gospel. So verse 11 tells us that God is, godliness is deeply concerned with how we live. The first half of verse 12 tells us that it's deeply concerned with what we believe. The second half of verse 12 is concerned with something different. You'll notice that Paul says that Timothy is to take hold of eternal life. What does that mean? Well, Paul is not saying that Timothy needs to become a Christian because he refers to his conversion here when he says, which you made this good confession in the front of the presence of many witnesses. He's not telling Timothy that you've lost your faith and now you need to get it back. So what is he referring to here? Well, the key for us to understand this is to remember that eternal life is more than just temporal. It's more than just something that exists out in the future, but it has uh, an impact on how we live today. 
John chapter 10, a passage that we are all familiar with, says this. I came, Jesus came, that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came to give us eternal life, abundant life, not just for the future, but also for now. See, what Paul is referring to is something I think that many of us can experience from time to time in our own life. We can cognitively recognize the external reality of eternal life, of the gift of eternal life for us, and yet we don't let it become an internal one. We don't let it fully change who we are. It is possible for us to have eternal life without actually embracing it. You see, godliness is more than morality. It's more than just living a good life. It's more than just right doctrine, believing the right things. It also is experiential. It's about experiencing who God is. It's about tasting and seeing that God is good. It is experiencing his presence in our lives. In order for us to live a faithful, God-honoring life, we need to embrace eternal life today. Embrace what that means for us today. Think back to the man of God, the woman of God in your life. How would you describe them? What made them godly? I would guess it was not just living a moral life. It was not just having a lot of knowledge about the Bible. But they also experience God's presence in their life. They love God and that exudes from them. It shows how they live their life. No matter how difficult their life may be. They have peace. They have joy. Because they have experienced the goodness of God. I'm not saying that that doesn't mean you don't struggle with depression or anxiety, but there is a presence of God in your life. Timothy, remember, a young pastor facing insurmountable odds as a pastor with his fracturing church, had no joy in God. And so Paul charges him to experience the goodness of God, to feel God, to let that goodness of God change who he was. Again, this language here is aggressive. Take hold is translated elsewhere in the book of Acts as seize when the apostles were arrested. It refers to grasping with determination, with a purpose, not letting go with our lives, to never let go. And that is what we are called to do with the goodness of God in our lives. We are to run, we are to fight, we are to embrace the goodness of God. Paul is concerned deeply with how we are to grow as Christians. And everything he says here refers to the hard work that it is to grow in godliness. There is no shortcut. There is no easy path. Growth takes longer than we oftentimes like to think. We oftentimes take five steps backwards and two steps forward. We take detours. We we miss the exit. We all go different ways than we plan. And yet God is continuing to be faithful with us. Indeed, that's the motivation that Paul gives to Timothy at the end of this passage. Pick up again in verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ 
which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul gives Timothy a closing charge. That charge is to keep the commandment. And you might say, well, that is worded a little weird. What does he mean by keep the commandment? Essentially, what Paul is saying is to live in light of everything he said in this letter. Live in light of everything that has been said in this letter. And then he gives Timothy three profound motivations. Ways to spur him on to living more like God in his life. First one is this. Live in light of the presence of God. Live in light of the presence of God. He says, I command you, or I charge you in the presence of, of God, who, who is the, the creator, or gives life to everything, and, and Jesus, who himself made this good confession, keep the commandment. Everything that you do is done in the presence of God. God is with you, has been with you, will always be with you. God is with you at all times. Here's the thing about Paul. I find Paul frustratingly beautiful. I say what he says here is beautiful because every single second he lives with a conscious recognition that God is with him, that he lives in God's presence. But I say frustrating because so often I see that that's not true in my own life. I can cognitively recognize that God is present with me and yet oftentimes that does not influence the way that I live. What would it look like for us to live with a cognitive recognition that God is with us in every moment? You see, Paul is not trying to scare Timothy and say, you better not do X, Y, and Z because God is watching. But he says this as a form of encouragement. It's not a threat, but it's supposed to spur Timothy on. God loves him. God is with him. This may come as a surprise to many of you, but the slides here in Spencer on the playgrounds are not meant for people who are six feet tall, especially the ones that go in in circles. The the curve of those slides is just too sharp for someone my height to make it down and have any fun whatsoever. It's it's really actually quite disappointing in my life. That said, uh, I have a two-year-old son. Silas, and uh, when he started to want to go down slides, he was afraid to do so unless he had me or his mom with him. And so even though it was tough, even though it was of no fun for me whatsoever, I, by golly, I got in that slide and went down. My presence with Silas was not a form of a threat. It wasn't to inspire fear in his life, but it was a sign of encouragement. It was a sign of rest and comfort to recognize that your father is with you. And that's what Paul is saying here. God is with you. Rest. Be comforted. He loves you. And that spurs us on to grow in holiness. Live in light of God's presence. Second one is this. Live in light of Christ's return. Paul reminds Timothy that Jesus' return is imminent. It should inspire in us constant expectancy that we are not to be unprepared with our lives. 
I want to share a completely hypothetical story that has uh, no truth whatsoever in my life or in anyone else's life ever. Let's say in this hypothetical story, there's a a dad of two young children. One of them just turned two and one will turn nine months in a few months. Let's say in this hypothetical story, uh, the the man who I'm going to be talking about uh, is a pastor of a young church. And uh, in this scenario that is completely made up and has no association with any experience that I've ever had in my life, he works a long day, comes home, wants to play with his kids, and then it's time for them to go to bed. He and his wife put them to bed, and then he, exhausted, collapses on the couch. Well, after the kids are in bed, his wife says, I'd like to go to the store. Can you make sure that you clean up uh, all the toys that are strewn about the living room? Now, in this uh, scenario that has no basis in real life and is just completely made up, uh, the man, you know, he loves his wife. He, he wants to honor her. He wants to serve her. He wants to do what she has said. And so he says, of course. And she walks out the door to go to the store. And yet before he sits down uh, or before he gets to work uh, picking up these toys, he thinks to himself, well, she's going to be gone 30 minutes. All these toys will only take about five minutes for me to clean up. So I can just take a few minutes and and rest before I get to it. 30 minutes later, he wakes up on the couch to the uh, sound of the garage door opening. And I jump, I mean, uh, this man jumps up as fast as he possibly can, uh, tries to pick up five minutes worth of toys in 20 seconds. So that way he doesn't look like a lazy sloth to his wife. Paul is describing the opposite of this completely hypothetical story that has never, ever happened in my life or anyone else's. He's saying that we are to live in light of Christ's return, that we are to have this constant expectancy that God is coming back. Jesus is coming back. A pastor in the 1800s named J.C. Ryle said, The greatest form of motivation for us to grow in holiness is the second coming. The return of Christ is the greatest form of motivation for us. You see, I think a lot of times we can forget that. A lot of times we can have good motives like me. I'll just say it's me. We all know it's me. Uh, Like me in those situations, we have great motives. We want to honor God. We want to serve God. We want to love God. And yet we can get distracted. We can chase after other things. And then we can find ourselves not focused on Christ's return. The greatest form of motivation for us is the surety that Jesus is returning. So live in light of Christ's return. The final thing that Paul mentions as a form of motivation is this benediction here, this doxology, this beautiful, beautiful passage. Talks about the sovereignty of God and reminds us that we are to live in light of God's rule. We are to live in light of God's rule. This hymn that he shares celebrates the lordship of God in every sphere of our lives. Reminds me of a quote from Abraham Kuyper. He says this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Every single sphere of human existence is ruled by God. And for Timothy, this man who is faced with discouragement, who is faced with opposition from without the church and within the church, Paul ends this passage with a beautiful reminder of God's sovereign reign over everything. 
If you find yourself faced with discouragement, if you find yourself in a place where it seems like your circumstances are bigger than your God, remember these words. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. You see, that text is a powerful reminder to us that faithful Christian living is hard work. And yet we have a wonderful God who reigns. It is a reminder to us that every single ounce of grace-fueled effort that we exert to know God more is worth it. As we look at this passage, I think it can just be summed up in one simple phrase. A faithful, God-honoring life is found in the presence and in the promises of God. It's found in the presence and promises of God. It's found in God's presence because that is where our motivation is found. That's where we find the ability to follow God. And it's found in his promises, a joyous reminder of who he is, of what he has done for us, and the promise that he is returning Soon, a faithful God-honoring life is found in the presence and promises of God. If you find yourself on the path to holiness and it's not looking the way that you thought it would, do not be discouraged. A straight line to holiness has never happened. God is unbelievably patient with us. He is unbelievably faithful to us. God is continuing to work on you, recognizing that your growth is a process, that God has his purposes for you, and he will accomplish them. One author puts it this way. The life of the godly is not an interstate through Nebraska, but a state road through the Blue Ridge Mountains of Tennessee. There are rock slides and precipices and dark mists and bears and slippery curves and hairpin turns that make you go backwards in order to go forwards. But all along this hazardous, twisted road that doesn't let you see very far ahead, there are frequent signs that say the best is yet to come. And at the bottom right corner of each of these signs, written with an unmistakable hands, are the words, As I live, says the Lord. Jesus is faithful. He promises to bring his work in your life to completion someday. Indeed, that's what Paul says in Philippians 1. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let us pursue him. Let us pursue godliness, knowing that he is with us, that he is for us, and that he will come again for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises that we find in it. We thank you for the challenges that we find in it. We ask as we go from here that you would be with us, that you would watch over us, that you would give us the strength to follow you faithfully, to honor you with every fiber of our beings. Make us tangibly aware of your presence in our lives, oh God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.